Cramaholic. It is your host, Kenzie. I'm here with an extra Missing Mondays episode. But before I get started, I want to tell you about a podcast that I have come across that I am really enjoying. I talk a lot about the fact that when covering true crime stories, they can get a little heavy and it can take a little bit of emotional toll. So when I feel like I need a break from the heavy, I like to get petty with Live Love Larceny. Live Love Larceny is a genre-bending comedy podcast that parodies everything you think you know about true crime. Instead of true crime comedy podcast covering serious subject with lighthearted banter, Live Love Larceny takes the funniest dumb criminal stories and presents them in a style of an overly dramatic documentary. Some of the stories that they have covered that I have enjoyed is one about two old men getting in a fight over Costco samples. There was another one where they had told the story of how the Titanic's film crew were given chowder spiked with PCP and even a Florida man who threw an alligator through Wendy's drive through as a prank. So again, if you just need a little bit of a break from all the heavy, emotional true crime stories, check out Live Love Larceny on any place that you can get a podcast. Some of you have been noticing that I have not been on the show as frequently as I usually am and have been receiving messages on my personal Instagram just asking how I've been doing and if I'm still recording episodes and the answer is yes. In the last couple of months, I've had some things going on within my personal life that had me step away from the show for just a little while, but I am back and I really miss recording and doing all of the research. So this week, I wanted to throw out an extra Missing Mondays episode. Missing Mondays was a segment that was created because at any given time, 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. While some are found or live or deceased, the majority of them are still missing today. And it is my goal here at Crimeaholics to keep missing persons' name and information in the media to aid in their return home the best that I can. On this episode of Missing Mondays, I will be bringing you the disappearance of the Fort Worth Trio, three girls who seem to just vanish two days before Christmas. When we think of the Christmas holidays, the majority of us think about happy times, fun memories, and time spent with family. For three families in Fort Worth, Texas, the Christmas holidays bring memories of a true living nightmare. In 1974, three young girls named Rachel Trelisa, Renee Wilson, and Julianne Mosley during the Christmas holidays took a trip to the mall to buy Christmas gifts for their family. But this short trip to the local mall would be the very last time that anyone ever saw the three girls alive. Two days before Christmas in 1974, Renee Wilson, who was just 14 years old at the time, had put a pair of jeans that she was just dying to have on layaway at the local Army and Navy store. But being only 14 years old, Renee obviously did not have the means to drive herself. So she asked her 17-year-old friend Rachel to drive her to the Army and Navy store. Rachel, being the good friend that she was, had no issue taking Renee to the store. Renee's boyfriend Terry was supposed to accompany the two girls, but at the last minute he backed out on the shopping trip. Being only nine years old, Terry's little sister Julianne Mosley had gotten word that the shopping trip was still happening and she insisted on tagging along. Although Renee was upset that Terry wasn't coming along, he had a pretty good reason on why he was making this very last minute decision. 
One of his close buddies was having an operation done at the hospital and he promised that friend that he would go with and did not want to go back on his work. So Renee really couldn't be mad at Terry, so she was perfectly fine with Julianne taking his spot on that shopping trip. The three girls made plans to go to the South Seminary Mall once Renee had a chance to grab her jeans from the Army and Navy store. But they told their families that they would return before 4 p.m. that day on the 23rd as Rachel and Renee had a party to attend and Julianne had a curfew of her own. All three girls were good children. None of them had a big history of getting in trouble. However, Rachel's relationship with a man named Tommy was considered to be unorthodox to some. While she was only 17, she was married to a 22-year-old and he had been previously engaged to her older sister, Deborah. Before being engaged to Deborah, he was married to an unnamed woman whom he had a child with. So Rachel is a 17-year-old high school student, married, and a stepmom. Some would say that this is a lot of responsibility for a 17-year-old to take on, but Rachel loved Tommy and she did not see anything wrong with her lifestyle. Rachel's main reasoning for going to the mall on the 23rd was to pick out a Christmas gift for her stepson. Like Rachel, Renee is also in a bit of a serious relationship herself despite only being 14. Earlier in the day on the 23rd, Terry had given Renee a promise ring, making a promise to her that they would be together forever. Rachel and Renee's families spent a lot of time together as the girls were growing up. The two families liked to spend their time camping together at a lake outside of the city of Fort Worth called Rocky Creek, meaning it was not unusual for the families to let the girls go off into town together and not really worry that anything bad was ever going to happen to them. The girls arrived to the South Seminary Mall in Fort Worth, which is said to be a huge, spacious mall that is continually packed, especially around the holidays. After the three girls arrive at the mall, they head into the Sears store so Rachel can pick out something for her stepson. While the girls were inside the Sears store shopping, multiple witnesses said that they had seen Rachel, Renee, and Julie Ann while in the store. The witnesses all stated that the girls seemed to be having fun and enjoying their time and nothing had seemed off. After Rachel buys the gift that she wants for her stepson, at some point, the gift is put into the car and then that is the last trace of the girls. It is now 4 p.m. on the 23rd and the girls still have not arrived back home. Their families don't get too worried just yet because the girls are responsible and they don't really feel they have any need to worry just yet. But as the time is going on and the clock is ticking, the girls are still not coming home. The girls didn't arrive home at 4. 5 o'clock came and went. And now it is 6 p.m. and they're starting to get a little worried. So the families head on over to the local mall to see if they could find the girls. When they arrive at the mall, what they find is Rachel's car parked outside of the Sears parking lot. All of the doors on Rachel's car were locked and there really wasn't anything that led them to believe that something bad had happened. There was no busted windows on the car. The car didn't look like it had been broken into. And when they looked in the back seat, what they find was the Christmas gifts that Rachel had bought while inside the Sears store. The families call the police to report their children missing, and after they make the report to the police, they head inside to the mall to all the stores to go door to door to try and find out if anybody has seen their children. 
But because it is late into the evening, all the stores are starting to close for the holidays. So they don't really have any more information that they're able to gather. So they're just waiting around for the police to show up to hopefully be able to help. But the waiting is making the three families anxious because hours have gone by since their children have gone missing and the police still have not arrived at the mall. It is now 11 p.m. and the police finally make their way over to the South Seminary Mall. When they arrive, they tell their three families that the reason that they did not rush over super quick is because they had believed that the girls had likely made the choice together to run away. The three families are pretty shocked to hear this because they have all these questions of why. Why would they run away and why would they leave the car behind? Because the car would be such an essential thing needed to be able to make a quick getaway. Why would they take Julianne when she's only nine years old? Why would they leave when they have very little money on them, which they would need for gas and food? There were so many questions the families had that were left unanswered because it was so early on, but they were told to head home and just wait for the phone to ring. The police really did not look inside Rachel's car or tried to collect any possible evidence that could have been used. They just truly believed that the girls had likely ran away. All three of the families head home and they are anxiously waiting by the phone, hoping that the girls were going to call and check in. But... Throughout the night, no phone calls come and it's now Christmas Eve morning. What they get on Christmas Eve morning leaves them in total shock. What they found was a letter that had arrived at the home and it is a letter that is addressed to Tommy, Rachel's husband. And it says it's from Rachel. The letter reads, I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in the Sears upper lot love Rachel. She's meaning that she knows they are going to get in trouble, but this letter just seems super off. But the girls are apparently safe and maybe they really did run away. So there is a possibility that the police were right. But Rachel's family noticed several things about this letter that really stuck out to them to make them realize that Rachel was likely not the one who wrote this letter at all. The biggest thing that seemed off to the families was when the letter arrived. It was just less than 24 hours since the girls have went missing and the letter arrived supposedly from the U.S. Postal Service. But there is no possible way that the U.S. Postal Service back then at this time was able to get that letter to the families in less than 24 hours. So where did the letter come from and who brought it to the house overnight? The families also noticed the way the letter was written. Rachel always called her husband by Tommy, but the letter was written to Thomas. And Rachel was a lefty, but based on the writing of the letter, it looks like it was written by somebody who writes with their right hand. And Rachel's signature did not match. The families, of course, voiced their concerns to the police, but the police were sticking by their statement that the girls had likely ran away and just wrote the letter to inform their families where they were going to be and that they would be back soon. Christmas Eve turns into Christmas Day and there's a really heavy feeling coming over the families. Renee's mom takes all of her daughter's Christmas gifts and puts them upstairs in the attic in hopes that when Renee returns that she would be able to open her gifts. As the days are passing by and the families are not hearing from the girls and they're not getting any answers as to where they could be, hope is fading that the girls are going to be coming home soon. 
It is now into the new year, and it has been more than seven days since the girls have disappeared. And the police are now starting to think that their original theory that the girls are runaways is incorrect. There, of course, was a few leads right out the gate when the girls were first reported missing, but nothing ever comes of any of those leads. The families take the search for the girls into their own hands, and they are searching wooded areas, they are searching bodies of water, they are searching ditches, but nothing is turning up. That is until one month after the girls disappeared, the families get a little glimmer of hope when one of them receives a phone call. It's just after 11 a.m. It's very quiet in the Mosley home and the phone rings. Ryan Mosley, Julianne's mom, picks up the phone and she says hello. It is very quiet on the other end of the phone and nobody says anything. Ryan says one more time, hello, and she's just about to hang up when she hears a very quiet, low moan from a little girl's voice who utters the word, Mama. She quickly asks who's on the other end of the phone, but all that comes out from the voice is another shrill, low moaning Mama. She immediately believes that this is Julianne, but since the girls have gone missing and the word got out to the media, the Mosleys had been getting multiple prank phone calls. She says to the other person on the line, is this Julianne? And the person says, yes. And she says, if this is someone playing some kind of sick joke, please just stop because I cannot take it anymore. She asks one more time, is this Julianne? And the voice responds with, yes. Rayanne, of course, is freaking out asking her daughter where she is. The person on the other end of the phone says she has no idea where she is, but she is Julianne. The girl on the other end of the line lets out one more shrill mama before the line goes dead and Rayanne is just left there screaming. Rayanne is left feeling defeated because she has no idea who was on the other end of that call and she has no number to call back. But she is completely certain that this time, this was her daughter, Julianne. She reaches out to Rachel and Renee's family and finds out that they had also received similar calls. She tells him that she believes that Julianne is either sick or drugged, and that's why she can't tell her where she was. They, of course, call the police and tell the police of the phone calls that they had gotten. They were certain that this time, like I said, this was Julianne. But the police were able to actually track down majority of these phone calls and they find out that the majority of the phone calls were made by the same 14-year-old girl who'd lived in a nearby suburb. She confesses to making all of these phone calls, but would you guess that the only phone call she did not make was to the Mosley's home? So maybe this phone call was legit, maybe it was Julianne, and maybe the girls were still alive. But after this phone call to the Mosley home, there is no more leads to give any answers as to where and what has happened to the girls. As time passes, more tragedy is striking these families. Less than one year after the girls go missing, Rachel's father passes away from cancer, and her mom is forced to take a job at the local McDonald's to try and support the rest of her family. She is just devastated because she has lost her daughter, and now she has lost her daughter, and she is no closer to finding out what has happened. 
The three families are really starting to get concerned because they don't feel like the Fort Worth Police Department is actually taking the girl's case very seriously. But the cops actually come to Renee's father, Richard, and tells him that they have got a tip that the girls' bodies may be at the bottom of a well in a town just 30 minutes from the mall. Richard says that the police said that they would go check it out, but he did not really believe in his gut that they were actually going to check the well. He follows them over there to go see if they had actually checked on this well. As Richard is over there, he watches the officers drive over to a diner in that same town called the Paris Coffee Shop. He parks across the street and he waits for them to leave this coffee shop. Richard says that once they were all finished, the cops get back into their car, they drive straight back to the station and they call his house and let him know that they checked the well and nothing came of it. But Richard himself followed them over to the town and watched them at the diner. He physically, with his own eyes, watched them drive to the diner, have some coffee, leave the diner, and leave town. He never once physically saw them actually go to the well and check to see if the girls were there. Now that they feel that they don't have any trust in the Fort Worth Police Department, the families hired their own private investigator named John. And they're very excited about John because he seems rather eager to help the family find the girls. He very quickly starts following up on any tips that the police have gotten. And according to John, there was a lot of tips and leads that the police did not follow up on. And so he was very confident that based off all of these tips and leads that the girls may still be alive. And word gets out that John is on the case because not long after he takes on the girl's case, he gets an anonymous call claiming to know where the three girls are and this man is willing to do anything he can to be able to follow up on this lead. What happens with this anonymous call is strange. The person who calls John makes him go to several different payphones around the area before he will actually speak to him. Once John goes to all of these different payphones, the caller actually just disappears and refuses to talk to John. But one thing that did really stick out to John during these brief conversations that he would have with the caller, the caller said that he would like to turn himself in right to the district attorney without any of the police department getting involved. And to John, this, of course, is a very strange thing to say because if you have not done anything criminal, why would you be asking to turn yourself over to the district attorney and why would you specifically not want the police involved? But unfortunately, this anonymous caller leads John straight to a dead end. Four years would go by of John actively working the girl's case. But during that four years, although he followed up on tons of tips and leads, nothing ever panned out. And the family will be devastated once more in 1979 when they find out that John was found dead in his Fort Worth apartment building from a supposed drug overdose and his death was ruled a suicide. Now what is strange here is that after John dies, it is supposedly said that in his will he asked for all of his case files to be burned, including the girl's case file. Now 
Why would somebody want these case files burned exactly is what a lot of people didn't understand, especially the girl's family. But according to John's wife, a lot of his case files contain dirt on certain members of the Fort Worth Police Department. And he was worried that if this information had came to light after he passed away, that something bad would happen to his wife. With John being deceased and the case files being burned, all of the tips and leads dwindle to nothing and the girl's case goes cold. 25 years would pass before there is any movement in the Fort Worth Trio investigation. By 1999, Rachel's younger brother, Rusty, had taken the investigation on himself. He finally gets to a point where he reaches out to a man named Dan, who was a private investigator in the area. At the time of 1974, when the girls originally went missing, Dan had lived not far from the South Seminary Mall. He had originally heard about the girls going missing, and it actually really piqued his interest, and he started doing any type of search for the girls on his own, and even went from door to door asking witnesses if they had seen Rachel or any of the girls that day and he even went as far as going to Rachel and Tommy's neighbors. Some of the neighbors said that they had seen Rachel and Tommy and heard them getting into fights just weeks prior to the disappearance but those fights and arguments really didn't leave behind any type of evidence that Tommy was responsible for Rachel disappearing. But one thing Dan was sure to make note of was the letter that was supposedly handwritten by Rachel herself. The FBI was never able to determine whether or not Rachel wrote that letter. But what caught Dan's eye on that letter was when it was addressed to Rachel's husband, Tommy, there had been a return zip code on the corner of the letter. While some of the numbers were hard to make out, the majority of them were very legible. The zip code numbers were 7608, and the last number could have been an 8, or it could have been a faded 8 that made it look like a 3. But nobody really cared about this zip code too much, but it was something that Dan had always kept in the back of his head, that that zip code could mean something later on. And Dan would actually be correct. It turns out in 2020, an article had been found and it said that Rachel's husband, Tommy, had moved out of Fort Worth after the girls had disappeared and he moved to a town called Throckmorton, Texas. And at the time, the zip code just happened to be 76083. Tommy was questioned about this, but he is adamant that he had nothing to do with the girl's disappearance. He says that yes, him and Rachel did fight, but why would he get rid of Rachel and the other two girls? There would have been no reason for him to end any of their lives. This wasn't Dan's only theory though. See, in the media, The three families were all seen to be just very quiet, normal, loving families. But what was actually taking place inside of Rachel's home was actually not so quiet and loving at all. It turns out that Rachel's father, who passed away from cancer, his name was Cotton Arnold, he had actually been very abusive to Rachel, his wife, and Rachel's sister, Deborah. 
he would often beat on them. And Dan had this theory that he believed Rachel might have been pregnant with Tommy's baby and Cotton had found out about it and he was determined to end Rachel's life over her pregnancy. And this was a really wild theory for Dan to run with, but Rachel's younger brother, Rusty, in his head believed this could also be a huge possibility given he was only 11 years old at the time of Rachel's disappearance. So there really wasn't a whole lot for him to be able to understand at the age of 11. Rusty asks Rachel's mother, Fran, if he can pay the cemetery to exhume Cotton's body for Dan. Dan has a plan that all he needs to get is his hands on one of Cotton's bones to be able to get DNA to see if they can also extract DNA from the handwritten letter that turned up on Christmas Eve. Dan and Rusty do get his father's body and they take it down to the medical examiner's office where they do get one of his bones and they do take a DNA sample and they have held onto it all of this time in hopes that one day they will get a DNA sample from that letter that they could hopefully get a match from. It hurts a lot of people in Rachel's family that Rusty believes that his dad could have done something to his sister. But Rusty loves his sister and he made the statement that he was determined to find out what has happened to his sister and he is going to do whatever it takes to try and give his family some answers. But it is now April 2023 and Rusty is no closer to finding out what happened to his sister Rachel Trelisa, her friend Renee Wilson, and little Julianne Mosley than he was back then in 1974. But he will never stop searching for answers. If you or somebody you know has any information regarding the disappearance of the Fort Worth trio, Rachel Trelisa, Renee Wilson, and Julianne Mosley, you're encouraged to call the Fort Worth Police Department at 817-392-4222. Crimeaholics, if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join a Crimeaholics podcast discussion group on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast, where I will have pictures of the Fort Worth trio posted or you are more than welcome to follow me personally at this is Kenzie, K-E-N-Z-I underscore on Instagram. Cramaholics, as always, be aware and take care.